and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm John. And I'm Andy. We've assembled a list of hundreds of film scores that are considered worth talking about, and we've been assigning them to ourselves by random drawing. And this time, the luck of the draw gave us... Henry Mancini's score for the 1958 Orson Welles noir classic, Touch of Evil. Touch of Evil was written for the screen by Orson Welles, adapted from some other screenplay that had been adapted from the novel Badge of Evil by Whit Masterson. It was produced by Albert Zugsmith at Universal, and it was directed by Orson Welles. John, give us the lowdown on Touch of Evil. Well, it's a gritty black and white film about a gritty black and white seedy border town Mexican-American border. And now the camera swoops flowingly back over to Andy to tell us who stars in the well, movie. Well, it stars Charlton Heston as Miguel Vargas, a law enforcement official from the Mexican side of the border, and Orson Welles as Hank Quinlan, a police detective from the American side of the border. It also stars Janet Lee as Vargas's wife, Susie. Joseph Kalea as Quinlan's trusty sidekick Menzies. Hakeem Tamaroff as Joe Grandy, the head of a local crime family. And in a very brief but memorable role as the local fortune teller Tana, Marlena Dietrich. And the camera continues to pan to the side and suddenly we see John who's saying... He's saying that after we see a bomb planted in a car on the Mexican side of the border that blows up on the American side of the border, law enforcement from both sides of the border try to get to the bottom of it, wary of each other and of the real culprits and of differing approaches to achieving justice and what even is justice after all. Uh, good enough? Hey John, how much how much evil is in this movie? I don't know, uh, like a, a little, like a dab. Yeah, it's like a dab. A dab of it, a dollop, a smidgen. All right, that sounds fine. I can handle that. Yeah, I mean, I, the unfortunate thing is, that I suspect that there's actually more evil than that. Like a whole badge worth. <laughs> Hey, so Andy, remember at the end of last episode, I was saying how relieved I was that I only had to watch one movie this time. Mm-hmm. Tricked you. Turned out, I kind of had to watch two movies, didn't I? You had to watch two movies that were incredibly similar. <laughs> yeah, I kind of wish that I hadn't gone into watching this movie knowing that there was this issue of there being different versions of it. There is an issue of there being different versions of it. How do you think it affected your viewing? Well, there's just a sense of ambiguity about what it really counts as the right way to see it. So it just kind of made me feel uneasy, like, uh, am I watching this the right way? You know, <laughs> the completionist in me felt like I was getting it wrong. 
Yeah, I hear that. It introduces an element of doubt, and doubt's not necessarily good for really extracting all of the feeling you can out of an art experience. Yeah, exactly. You kind of want to be able to just throw yourself in and trust that absolutely everything that's happening is the thing. Right. And yeah, this is a movie that pretty much from its first release has had some amount of doubt about it because of the history. So we should say what that is. So Orson Welles made this movie... But he didn't get to finish making it. He was not welcome on the Universal lot for the editing of this movie because, uh, well, because he was Orson Welles. (laughs) Yeah. He made himself somehow into this guy who kept not getting to finish his own movies. (laughs) After getting complete authority to make whatever movie he wanted, however he wanted, final cut on Citizen Kane at the age of, what, 25 or something. Yeah. And Citizen Kane is, by many reckonings, the greatest film ever made. After that, Orson Welles kept managing to not (laughs) quite do the politicking correctly and getting himself kicked out of his own projects. Which is a shame and also problematic for the viewer, as you're saying. Do you know exactly what he did in this case to have been shown the door? I think no one knows for sure. The impression I've gotten is that he was already by this point, 1957 and 8, considered troublesome by Hollywood, fairly or not. And having been hired for this job in the first place was kind of a wacky risk that the producers were taking. Did you see the story about why that happened? Yeah, I read that, in fact, he was originally only hired to act in the picture, but Charlton Heston got the impression that he would direct it, and the studio kind of went along with that to keep Charlton Heston happy. Yeah, I think the way Heston told it was that he was reading this script, which was about, as he saw it, a cop story. He thought, there's so many cop stories, the only thing that could make a movie like this stand out would be interesting direction, so... Who's the director? I said, who's going to direct it? They said, well, we haven't picked a director yet. We have Orson Welles to do the heavy, though. This was on the long-distance phone. And after a static-filled pause, I said, "Uh, why don't you have him direct it? He's a pretty good director, you know. And the reaction at first was a prolonged silence, as though I had suggested that my mother direct the film. And after a while, I said, "Uh, yeah, that's right. We'll... uh, We'll get back to you. And they said, okay, I guess, because they, yeah, wanted to please him and maybe thought, all right, we're told it's risky to hire Orson, but maybe it'll pay off. And I think they thought it had paid off up until the editing stage. And then Orson Welles, apparently, was a very (laughs) slow editor. He liked to take many months working through things. I've read some interviews where he said that he really thinks of editing as where the art of movie making happens because just filming a bunch of footage, anyone can do that. But then figuring out what the rhythm is and how it cuts together is where he wants to spend all his time and he's slow about it. I can relate to this. (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. So anyway, I think that they got nervous because he had been in the editing room for so long and they hadn't seen the movie yet. And the story I read was that he had an appearance on a television show and left town to go be in a TV studio in New York for the night. And they just broke into his studio and pulled out what he had been working on and screened it to see how he was doing. 
and decided that what they saw was so, you know, confirmed their worst fears. And they were like, all right, no more Orson Welles. We'll finish this ourselves. He's such an interesting figure, Orson Welles, because as much as he seems to be a practitioner of a high art sense of filmmaking, he was readily conversant with the lowest art that there can be. And he was constantly involved with weird, cheap, projects to pay the bills and uh... well that was the thing i think charlton heston talking about uh what he thinks orson welles's problem was (laughs) he says you know a painter or another kind of artist they can just get any job make some money they could be a cashier they make money that way and then they buy their paints and they do their art and i think it always rankled orson that he couldn't just operate that way he had to go to these studios and get them to grant him these jobs and that that didn't sit well with him and i think orson welles's plan in the latter part of his life was well maybe there's an actor's equivalent of the getting a job as a cashier i'll just do commercials in the transformers movie and uh yeah. you know give kermit the frog his uh, <laughs> the rich and famous the rich yeah. and famous contract and i'll use that to pay for my weird movies that got increasingly less commercial as he went along here's an odd job that he picked up on the universal lot while he was making this movie he picked up some voiceover work here he is in the trailer for this schlocky 57 sci-fi classic the incredible shrinking man yeah well he had a great voice for that. He's Orson Welles. He sure is Orson Welles. Just listen to him. This is Orson Welles speaking. I have 45 seconds to tell you about something I think you'll remember the longest day you live. It's about a man named Scott Carey. A few months ago, he was six feet, two inches tall and weighed 190 pounds. Today, he's two inches tall and you can hold him in the palm of your hand. Yeah, because he was the voice on the radio. Hello, this is Orson Welles. He did that all the time. All right, that's what he was... uh... That's what he was up to at the same time. That's what he was up to. I guess now we got to play what happened to this movie. So they said, you're not going to finish it. We'll finish this. But they either had some contractual obligation to show him the cut they'd made, or they had some remnants of pity for him. So they showed him what they had cut together once, and then he went home and wrote 58 pages of notes sort of pleading with them. I know you don't want to do anything I want. I know you don't like me, but I can't help but say, I think it would be better if you did this and that and this and that for 58 pages. It's a very odd tone he strikes in this memo. Like, he's very polite and politic and tries to lay out the case for what he wants to happen on its merits and not asking you to uh, grant me any indulgences. Yeah. And they actually did take some of his notes, right? Yeah, a bunch of it. But they didn't do everything he wanted. Mm -hmm. And they included a bunch of retakes that they had done apparently because they were so displeased with the darkness or the Orson Wellesy artiness or probably just seemed too non-commercial to these producers. And Albert Zugsmith, the producer of this movie, was also the producer of, uh, well, for one, The Incredible Shrinking Man <laughs> and High School Confidential and Sex Kittens Go to College. The studio thought they were making a B-picture that was going to appeal to a B-picture audience because it was going to be a sleazy crime drama. And they thought Orson Welles had gone so far outside the lines of that formula that they had a problematic product. So they tried to make it into the real thing. And that's what was released in 1958. So 40 years later, some editors got together, including Walter Murch, a very accomplished editor, lent their expertise to recreating the film according to that 58-page memo and carrying out all of Orson Welles' original wishes. So in 98, there was this restored version, which has, I think, about 15 minutes more footage in it. So we watched. Both of them. Yeah, both of them. Which one do you like better, Andy? 
It's such a big loaded question. I mean, right. yeah. I think it is really important to point out what became very clear to me the more I read the memo. The 1998 version is not Orson Welles's version of the movie either. It is a restoration made with very limited options. They didn't have the raw takes. They didn't have additional negatives. They just had the released movie and this preview cut of the movie that had some extra footage in it. But they didn't have other stuff that Orson Welles surely wanted to use. Some of his directions can't actually be put into effect with the footage they had. So they came up with approximations. Some of the things he says, you have to sort of guess what means so the 1998 movie is someone's guess hey let's try to see what orison wells had in mind and i think some of what you see in that one probably is a better version of what he had in mind and some of it is maybe sort of indicative of it but it isn't actually it there's no perfect satisfaction to be had with this movie you just have to work with what you got i mean i think that the stuff that he writes in the memo as not making sense without these additional scenes and these other bits of dialogue that then got added in for the restored version i think that stuff does make more sense like i got to the end of the 98 version and kind of felt like i had arrived somewhere a little more solidly yeah there are definitely some important pieces of dialogue that are only in the 98 version so i think if i had to recommend just one to someone it would be the 1998 version yeah but but let me ask you if you had to recommend only one version of the first four minutes of the movie to watch which one would you recommend this is really the crux of the matter i think um how about we approach it like this okay let's listen to the main title that was written by henry mancini for this movie this is a classic piece of film music and I think just a wonderful composition. Oh, yeah. Uh, for sure, this is terrific. So let's listen to it and talk about it, and then we can talk about what it does in the movie and how it should do it. And, of course, it's important to say that what we're watching on screen while we hear this music is one of the most famous shots in all of moviedom. It's this three-and-a-half-minute-long, continuous, uncut tracking shot that starts with a close-up on a bomb, and then we see a guy run across the street and put it into the trunk of a car, and then people get into the car and drive the car down the street, and the camera is being driven, you know, on one of those uh, crane cherry picker rigs. On a big boom. Yeah, so the car drives down the street in the seedy border town, which is really Venice, California. Of course, I've been there. And here come the protagonists, Charlton Heston and Janet Lee. And for their entrance, the music kind of turns a corner as well. There's this saxophone entrance. There's a little bit of a softer edge to this spot. It's a little less angular than it was when it started out. There's a lot of spots where the music seems to hit the revelation of something as it drifts into frame or it falls on one of the on-screen credits that are being superimposed over it. I think it is a tremendous accomplishment of film scoring, this main title. I also just think it is exciting and intriguing music on its own, stylistically speaking. Mm -hmm. 
This movie, as we've said much times, takes place on the Mexican-American border, but an interesting choice that is made that does seem to have come from Orson Welles, although it's not clear how it got to Henry Mancini because Mancini says he never really had a meeting with Welles. He was in the room with him once and Welles was upset and then he said, who's that guy? <laughs> and that is basically all of the direct interaction they had. But we do have some memo text from Wells talking about how to suggest this border. And he says, It is very important that the usual rancheras and mariachi numbers should be avoided, and the emphasis should go on Afro-Cuban rhythm numbers, which is an unusual but very specific choice that the music corresponding to Mexico in this movie is not really Mexican music. It's Latin jazz, which at the time was more or less known as Afro-Cuban jazz. And this number, I mean, wouldn't you agree, is basically derived from the sounds and rhythms of Cuban music, right? Yeah, for sure. This is Cuban and not Mexican. Those bongos and congas. Yeah. And the syncopated rhythm with you know, these anticipated accents. Bam, 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 bam. That's not really uh, Mexican style. That's right. There's nothing really geographically correct about this music. Right. But that, I think, relates to the whole spirit of the movie. I actually wanted to talk about that specific rhythm. Okay. What do you think that rhythm is? Da 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 da. How do you think it's written out? I mean, I would write it with, you know, eighth, quarter, quarter, like that. You would write it as strictly da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and you think they're playing it loose. Yeah, yeah. It's got that kind of slightly off the ground, slightly on your tiptoes dancing feeling of rhythm where the eighths aren't stuck to the grid. They're sort of floating in it. Mm -hmm. I had always heard it as essentially that, that it was probably the whole band feeling this lazy eighth note, the kind of swagger. And in this context, I felt sort of menace yeah. of that lazy rhythm. Da, 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 da. Like, yeah, I know where the grid is, but I don't care. You better watch out. <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot of the musical effect in this movie is the menace of laziness. Yeah, I had always heard it as da-da-da-da-da that was slowed down by a band that was feeling the, the self-satisfaction of this music, that it was like man-spreading its own rhythm <laughs> across the bar line. Then when I was listening to it to really pick apart how this piece works, I believe I have determined what it actually is, and there's no confirming this because there is no official sheet music of this, and uh, sometimes we are lucky enough to have, you know, illicit copies of the uh, actual manuscripts of things. <gasps> shh, shh, quiet. Jeez, don't tell them. But uh, no, no access. So I don't know what Henry Mancini wrote down, but I think that I have determined that what he wrote down is... I can't wait. The clave rhythm, the son clave that is the underpinning of so much Latin music or Cuban music when it's used in a different form, usually just tapped out on the instrument called claves. The clave, which I think it means the key, which is like the entire piece is built around it, is... Duck, 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 dunk, dunk, which is subdivided sixteenths. Da 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 I think that is what the saxes are doing there, but instead of doing it as the skeleton of the piece, they're doing it against the skeleton that's a steady grid, so it feels delayed. 
has taken this thing that is an essential element of Latin music, but he's used it in the melody rather than in the rhythm section, which gives a weird kind of expansive effect. Do you think I'm right about that? I think that sounds plausible. I think it's certainly something that would occur to Mancini to do, to transpose a rhythmic element that's supposed to be in the accompaniment and make a melody out of it and put it on top of a different rhythmic accompaniment. That's the kind of mastery of isolated tropes of music making that he built up for himself in his work at Universal Studios. His job for a long time in the music department at Universal Studios was to write source music cues for any number of pictures that came down the pike. Whenever they needed music that was going to play on the radio, he was in the crew that got asked, yeah, make something that sounds like this. It's got to sound authentic. This is this popular music on the radio. This is what this big band is playing in the background. Yeah, well, this score as a whole is kind of a triumph of the source writing additional music guy's skill. Exactly right. Like, I can make a whole movie out of that. Yeah, I just wanted to say, though, that I wish I had that job. (laughs) I mean, I guess in a sense I do have that job, but I have to freelance it the whole time. I'm so jealous of him being on staff at a studio and just being the guy that they ask to do anything. Because you'll learn everything that way. Some of the most satisfying compositions for me that I've written have been when I've kind of had to reverse engineer some form of music that I'm not necessarily well-versed in, but you got to try to figure out what makes it tick to get something that sounds right in that idiom. I find it very satisfying, and he got to do that every day, and he became well-versed in every idiom. You know, that reminds me of our long-ago conversation about the Pink Panther, I think. Yeah. We tried to appreciate his complete ease at dishing out one kind of background music after another. Yeah, dishing out any given style of popular music was really his job. Yeah, so we'll talk about the other music in Touch of Evil, much of which is truly and purely that. As we'll see, the approach to this whole score is to find a bunch of different popular musical styles and bring them all into the circle of this noir fantasy of this movie. But this main title is a little bit hybrid between source music and scoring. Yes, it is. There's something not quite authentically, say, Cuban about this. Its inspirations seem to be, first of all, was briefly shouted out when we talked about The Man with the Golden Arm, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that an influence on a lot of the crime jazz in the 50s had been particularly the Stan Kenton big band. They had this noisy, brassy sound that was willing to get fairly modernist. And that influenced so much of this crime jazz. And that doesn't directly play into this cue, although we'll hear little sounds of it in later cues. But they had put out an album called Cuban Fire the previous year. Here's some Cuban Fire from Stan Kenton. And this was in the air, certainly in Mancini's mind. And he indeed, just like in Man of the Golden Arm, hired the guys who played in this band and other bands like this. Shelly Mann that we talked about in Man of the Golden Arm. Yeah, Shelly Mann, the drummer for the Stan Kenton band. Just like we talked about, he got hired and he actually got put on screen in The Man with the Golden Arm, which was 55. And sure enough, Mancini went out and hired him to play drums for this score. In fact, Mancini went out and assembled a rogues gallery of top-level jazz pop 
top players of the day, including Shelly Mann and Plast Johnson on sax, who would go on to play the famous saxophone solo melody for the Pink Panther theme. Mm-hmm. The vibes on this score are played by Red Norvo, who was one of the top jazz vibraphonists at the time. Yeah, he decided, you know, I'm going to make all of this music. It's got to sound like the hit records of the day. I need to get the best players. Another thing that I think influences this main title is the actual Cuban mambo music, which was getting quite popular in the late 50s, of Perez Prado, who would use this same kind of arrangement where the saxes were keeping up this repeating line. And it's usually bouncier in those mambo pieces, but it has sort of the same structure in sound as this opening. First thing you hear, whoa, sax. That ground level gets placed. And then, fascinatingly about this track, the melody starts exactly inside the accompaniment at the same register on the same notes. The brass comes in here inside and on top of the accompaniment. There's kind of a claustrophobia to it. It feels crowded, right? Yeah, crowded and sort of slowly aggressive. Mm -hmm. It's crawling up towards you, this sort of snake. I mean, it's catchy. It feels like probably at some imaginary club they would play this music. Mm -hmm. But it is also menacing, not quite settled. And that combination of menace and dance and excitement is such a great way to start a movie. I mean, this is one of the great main titles for a movie. It definitely is. And of course, as you mentioned, we're watching a ticking time bomb, literally worrying that a bomb is going to blow up a car. And indeed, there is a cowbell doing time bomb (laughs) in this music. So, all right. So you said that this is music that you can easily imagine that you would really hear in a club somewhere. Well, not in a realistic club. Okay, not in a realistic club. Apparently, that's uh, what Orson Welles thought, because he thought that this club music wasn't realistic enough for him. When he saw the cut of the movie that had this music on his baby, this great achievement of this long, long, impossibly long tracking shot, what he writes in that memo, he says, I assume that's temporary. I saw that he later said that he didn't really know this fellow Mancini, but he thought he had done a good job with the music. And I kept wondering, was the music that he heard and said, I assume that's temporary, was it some temporary music other than this? Or was it this? Do we know for sure that it was this? I guess we don't know for sure that it was this. But he made very clear that it's not what he wanted. First of all, he didn't want there to be titles on screen because that would be too distracting from the shot. Well, I could not find him saying in the memo, please take the titles out. But yes, to reveal, the 1998 version does not have titles over this sequence. And it doesn't have this music over the sequence. That is what Walter Murch and his producers thought Orson Welles wanted. What he wanted was to hear a collage of source music. He said... The streets of a border town are always noisy with the blare of various loudspeakers, broadcasting from the entrance of nightclubs, bars, and cantinas. What we want is musical color rather than movement, sustained washes of sound rather than melodramatic or operatic scoring. 
What he wanted was the effect of hearing the bands playing in each of the little dingy clubs that we were floating past down the street, overlapping each other. He wanted the sonic perspective of all of this different music from all of these different pop traditions spilling out onto the street, in addition to music from the radio of the car that we're following. Yeah, he wanted the sense of space. The flamboyance of this shot is all about exploring this space. He wanted the sound design to be... The sound of traveling. The sound of moving through space, experiencing different spaces. That is what was reconstructed for the 1998 version. Yeah, they took all of these standalone pieces of Afro-Cuban jazz and American-sounding rock and roll and different kinds of swing, all of these pieces of source music that Mancini wrote originally for the picture and that were indeed used in that manner for many scenes in the original 1958 release. But in 98, they concocted this stew of those pieces in this kind of sounds design traveling through space idea. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about it? Well, I think it's a cool idea. I think it's interesting. I think I prefer it with the title music. I think it actually affects the feeling and meaning of the whole movie, whether this piece of music is there. It does. And so deciding whether you prefer it with or without this main title is deciding something pretty big about your interpretation of this movie. So let me ask you, do you like the movie? I do like the movie. Like I said, I wish I could just watch it as a movie instead of as a document of interesting stories of movie making. I used to think this movie was not as satisfying as everyone said. I found it hard to love, but I actually found that spending more time with it these past couple weeks, I have come to be pretty into it. I think I do like this movie a lot now. Yeah, I do like it a lot. I don't love it. I'll say that. Yeah, it's hard to love because it's got problems. Some of them editorial problems, others content problems. It's a weird story that I don't think totally adds up. When I first saw it, I remember being frustrated that the story didn't add up and I thought I was here for the pulp of this story and Warriors my satisfaction it didn't give it to me and now having spent more time thinking about Orson Welles and the ambitions and the intentions I stopped caring about the story yeah and there's a lot to enjoy when you stop caring about the story there's so much to enjoy in the photography I mean that was always Orson Welles's calling card is just the bravura of this black and white photography is stunning I think everything is just so starkly noir shadows and what did you say in the last episode Dutch angles yeah German expressionism I mean Orson Welles's influence on our whole concept of what noir looks like via Citizen Kane and then he made some you know a Lady from Shanghai and some other movies in this vein but yeah this is often described as one of the last great films noir by Orson's well <laughs> <laughs> that sounds swell it is swell yeah so to the question of whether the main title should be there I feel like it gets to what the point of the movie is and what the meaning of noir is and uh 
I'm not sure I have a clear answer, but that's what I found myself wrestling with as I thought about it. Well, I think that Orson Welles was really taken with this continuous shot, as well he should have been. He wanted to show it off to the maximum. And having words on the screen and having a continuous piece of music purporting to tell you what you were looking at, you know, I think were distractions in his mind. To more modern eyes, you know, we're a little more used to seeing photography like that, especially now in the age of drone cameras and stuff. It's not that unusual anymore to have a long, continuous flyover shot. So I don't feel like I needed to have my appreciation of this long shot protected from distraction. So I really appreciated, you know, the packaging, like I love to say, that the title's music puts on it. It tells me this is a cool long shot and it means that a cool movie is happening and we have a good story coming up. I think that is absolutely what it means, but I don't think distraction is the only pointed issue there. As you say, it's packaging and it tells you that there's a kind of familiar comfort that you are entitled to, that this is going to be fun. Yeah. It changes what kind of dramatic effect you're able to get out of it, whether you're told to be at ease or not at the beginning of a movie, right? That's true. Yeah, I don't deny that there's something to this collage alternative. It does make you uneasy, and that's not unvaluable. Is that a word? The idea of most of the rest of the score is that there's very, very little non-diegetic music. That's the technical term for music that's not coming from within the world of the movie. It was Wells' idea, and Mancini agreed, you know, as it was filtered down to him. Mancini said, I have a quote here, Wells' description of the music as he wanted it was exactly what I was already planning to do. He wanted no scoring as such. That is to say, underscore, all the music had to be what we call source cues. The overall effect that you get from that, I thought it related profitably to the spirit of noir, which we've used the word seedy like 10 times now. (laughs) If you set aside the storyline, which we're saying is sort of one of the keys to enjoying this movie, the movie is about the feeling of this imaginary border zone where everything is decayed at some level, right? I mean, seedy means it's gone to seed. Isn't that what it means? Yeah. And sleazy means... uh, It's gone to sleaze. I think sleaze means like a flimsy fabric originally, so it's like flimsy. Things that aren't sturdy and aren't hale and healthy. The movie starts in the middle of the night and there's litter on the streets and it's a fallen world. That's the noir thing, is disillusionment. Right. In the past, maybe we thought good and evil were simple, but now, oh, it's all a world of shadows. And the movie creates that space by using the sound of music coming from a speaker nearby, overheard music, found objects of music. Yeah. And it absolutely works to create a sense of the, you know, the abandoned carnival feeling, the feeling that you're somewhere that's falling apart, but the music is still playing. But is the spirit of excitement in the music real or is it sort of grotesquely the opposite? You know, is there something Uh. ironic about how much fun, quote unquote, fun this music is happening? Like we were saying, the dance music can be menacing. I think you get that sense of the menace of found music throughout this whole movie. I think starting the movie with some reassuring, fun packaging Hmm. exactly goes against that effect. It's almost the opposite to say, here comes Charlton Heston and Janet Leigh, movie stars, and they are going to have some kind of mystery they have to solve, and this is going to be a great movie. (laughs) It wants you to more feel like, I don't even know if I can trust this music. I hear that. Uh, There's something to it. 
worth pointing out that Wells had a very specific vision in mind of how the music was to be found and overheard and the feeling that that should give. Here's a bit of one of the memos that he wrote. He said, It is very important to note that in the recording of all these numbers, which are supposed to be heard through street loudspeakers, that the effect should be just exactly as bad as that. The music itself should be skillfully played, but will not be enough in doing the final sound mixing to run this track through an echo chamber with a certain amount of filter. To get the effect we're looking for, it is absolutely vital that this music be played through a cheap horn in the alley outside the sound building. After this is recorded, it can then be loused up even further by the basic process of re-recording with the tinny exterior horn. So he has all these, you know, analog methods that he's outlining in mind about we're going to take good music played by good players, but we're going to hear it poorly reproduce, and then we're going to hear a poor reproduction of that reproduction, and then it's going to be, like you said, loused up. Yeah, he so specifically has it in his ear the psychological effect of hearing some music wafting from nearby, but not right. being packaged and comforted by it, having to sort of contend with it as a phenomenon, you know? So I definitely am sympathetic, and I see the value in having that be our entrance to the movie. That's what greets us, is just all of these waftages coming at us. I think that we get enough wafting throughout the movie, it's full of it, that having had a chance to hear this composed through line, this put together piece, at the beginning, it gives us a point of contrast. It gives us a point of reference against which we can say that all of this other stuff we're hearing spill out onto the street is, you know, found as opposed to packaged. And I think it's really important that we have heard this music play on its own all the way through when we get to a certain point later in the movie. Well, that, I hear that. It actually does give more impact to the reappearance of this music for it to have been the main title. Yeah, I feel that very strongly. I also think that it's notable that Mancini has already tried, I think, very effectively to incorporate the idea of overheard popular music into his main title. It essentially reads as a composed evocation of what the music might be on that street. So I do think that what Mancini has done compositionally here to do justice to both impulses at once is itself very impressive. On the other hand, something that you get from the collage version that isn't in the Mancini is immediately the friction between American music and Latin music. Mm -hmm. The north of the border and south of the border, which is what the movie is supposedly about. The guy who gets in the car and the woman he's with, they're both going to be killed by this bomb. They turn on the radio and we get rock and roll, American style. (laughs) And as the rock and roll car is driving down the street, we hear the Latin music coming from the clubs on the Mexican side of the border. That does launch us on a, you know, border town movie in a way that the main title itself doesn't. So again, this rock and roll we hear coming out of the car radio, this is a piece of rock music. You know, it's this kind of sock hop style Mm -hmm. stuff that Mancini wrote and it was intended in the picture to be music being played over the radio in this sleazy motel that Janet Lee finds herself taken to and harassed in. 
this winds up getting associated with this like gang of greasers that the drug crime family sets upon her to, you know, intimidate her, I guess. It's a little unclear. Bad stuff happens to Janet Lee in motels. I mean, <laughs> boy, Janet Lee and weirdo clerks in motels. What does she do to deserve this? Uh, what do you think? Is it a coincidence or is it a non-coincidence? Do you think Hitchcock saw it? Remember when we were talking about Psycho and we said he wanted to do a real sleazy movie. Do you think it was this movie? Do you think he saw this and thought, oh, Orson Welles can redeem a B-picture, so can I, the same one? I think that's very likely. Yes, she winds up in a weird out-of-the-way motel, sound familiar, with a weirdo night clerk that she has to reckon with and be a foil for. Do you know who else from Psycho is in this movie? Who else from Psycho? Mm-hmm. No. Schwartz in this movie? Mort Mills? You recognize him? No. He's the cop who sticks his dark glasses in the window and freaks Janet Lee out when she stopped by the side of the road. Oh, wow. I didn't recognize him being able to see his eyes. <laughs> his glasses are not sunglasses in this movie. That's right. Yeah, so Janet Lee's in this sleazy motel, and she gets accosted possibly raped, possibly scared into thinking she was raped, possibly drugged, possibly scared into thinking she was drugged. It's left kind of vague, but they certainly menace her badly. Janet Lee said that in real life she was terrified when this was happening. She had broken her arm right before filming this movie, so that was an additional threat to her, that she had a broken arm and had to keep taking off the cast for shots. Yeah, so there's this, like you said, sock hop, 50s shuffles and swings and kind of ordinary radio rock. I think this is the music in the movie that's meant to be the lowest, you know, the kind of the sleaziest. This is the music that's associated with this gang of... But the associations in this movie are a little different than in other movies where there's a piece of source music that belongs to a character. It's associated by proximity, but we understand it as the way the world is that these people are trying to make their way through. You turn on the radio, you hear this music, and the world is a menacing place, and the world isn't such a great place. Mm -hmm. It has this forced grin. Ha, 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 we're having fun now. She might be about to, who knows what's going to happen to her with this grotesquely cheery music. One of the tracks, if you look on the soundtrack, the name of one of the tracks is Lease Breaker. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> it's a good title. It's meant to be, you know, this is the sound of a raucous party that's going to get you thrown out of your apartment. Most of the rock and roll tracks, and there are quite a few he had to write to cover a lot of different scenes with this same kind of spirit in the background. Most of them are, you know, electric guitar, drums, bass. And sax. And sax. But this one has the brass section in it, too, to just overpower. The effect of the big brass section and the raucous rock and roll really is the aggressive inanity of some music on the radio that you don't want to hear. Right. Aggressive inanity is nice. And that's a subtle thing. I mean, when we talk about source music, it's easy to say, well, it's just that kind of music, and this composer was obligated to write some of this kind of music. But you can do things where you change source music that really is in style to affect the listener, not by what it's communicating, but by what it just embodies as a musical object. And Mancini has done that, I think, throughout this score. Even though most of the tracks are source music, there is real sensitivity to what kind of a noir dream world this particular take on rock and roll might live in. 
And the players, I, again, wish I could hear what his directions to them were because something was communicated in the studio. They do a good job, I think, being realistic, but also getting at the essential kind of trouble of it. Like, it's got a little extra noise in it. Hmm. There's a little bit of an extra sense of, you know, there might be a fight as soon as this band stops. There's this bad <laughs> energy in the room. Huh. Well, speaking of there being bad energy in the room, this music gets to kind of be on both sides of things. It gets to kind of embody this creepy, soulless aggression that these delinquents that these delinquents are going to uh, harass Janet Lee with. But then there's this moment where this weirdo night clerk turns off the radio mm-hmm. in the room, and all of a sudden we're confronted with silence, with the absence of this aggressive music. And somehow the absence of this aggressive music is even more aggressive, and it makes yeah. it feel even I, I, more I, I, brutal yeah. somehow. Well, let me stay. I want to watch. That was a very nicely observed musical oh, effect with silence, with an out instead of playing through it. No, no, let me go! Don't touch me! Let me yeah. go! We knew all along that rock and roll wasn't a real good time and wasn't a real party, but we were still contending with the idea of rock and roll at some level, and now it's just gone. Yeah, it's an intense moment. And when that woman in the gang says, I'll just watch, that is creepy. You know who that is? No, who is it? It's Mercedes McCambridge, who is an Oscar-winning actress who was having lunch with Orson Welles, (laughs) and he said, hey, you want to be in this movie? (laughs) She said, sure. So he went and found her that leather jacket. He himself cut her hair to give her this short kind of boyish cut. And she's just in that one scene, just for a lark. Uh, That's cool. Yeah, Orson Welles just pulled in favors from people who (laughs) wanted to hang out with Orson Welles for a day. Zsa Gabor is in this movie for, I think, five seconds as one of the strippers in the strip club that they go visit. I read that she also happened to be dating the producer Albert Zugsmith at the time as well. Oh, interesting. So. All right. Well, maybe that explains that scene. We get a little bit of strip club music in this movie, too. Later in the movie, there's actual striptease music that sounds convincingly like it's music that would be played in a strip club. But in this earlier scene, there's kind of after hours lazy jazz music. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's similar music in the scene adjacent to that scene where one of the bad guy kids tries to throw acid at Charlton Heston's character, and there's this very easy, dreamy vibraphone jazz solo playing over that. Senor Vargas! Yes? It's the great effect throughout this movie of the cruelty, of the indifference of this music to the violence that's going on. Mm -hmm. That the music coming from someone's speaker, if it knows what's going on, how malicious does it have to be to be so smooth while someone's throwing acid at you? Yeah, except for when the music coming out of the speaker really, really knows what's going on. Yeah, all right, tell us. Okay, so... Janet Lee has been drugged. She's lying passed out on a bed. This local drug boss, Grandy, has been ordered to stage this whole scene by the crooked cop Hank Quinlan, Orson Welles' character. Quinlan is in the room with Janet Lee unconscious and this character, Grandy. Hey, what are you doing? I brought you up here for a reason. 
Now Quinlan's evil plan comes to fruition. He's going to kill this lowlife and pin it somehow on Janet Lee's character as some sort of intimidation ploy to foul up Charlton Heston's investigation. I don't think it really makes sense. But anyway, he's going to kill this guy because he's the bad guy of the picture. He's bad. He's really bad. And he made himself up to look as bad as he could. He uglied himself up and like had 60 pounds of makeup put on to make himself really fat and grotesque. And his face is so mottled with grisliness. It's kind of hard to look at the whole movie, but it's pretty great, actually. You're a mess, honey. Anyway, here we are. The real crime of the movie is going to happen, and we get to see it in all its gory detail. Stop when you're drunk. Just stop and think for a minute. Sure enough, there's some music playing that we're hearing for many minutes throughout this scene of dialogue between Grandy and Quinlan. This is clearly meant to be source music. In fact, though, it is the same material as the main title. It's that same piece of music. Quinlan. Turn me in, I'll have quite a story to tell. So there's this moment in the scene where Quinlan drops the pretense and reveals that he really plans to kill this guy. The music knows about it. This music that has been just playing in the background over some radio or coming out of the club down the street puts a sting on the moment when Orson Welles turns to go and kill this guy. I told you I brought you up here for a reason. He's already been kind of cat and mousing with him. He makes him pick up the phone. The guy sees that he's got a gun. He's scared. We have already learned from the way this movie works that the music in the next room is not a good sign. You know, yeah. music in the next room already scraping up against the nerves of this scene, right. even before it knows about it. So then he starts to move on this guy. The horns cut out. Now it's just a bongo solo. When the horns come back in, they have turned from source to score. They are absolutely now scoring this mad struggle where he strangles him. And then it starts playing the same piece of music again. It starts playing that same main title piece. But the trumpets are doing something different than the reeds are doing all of a sudden. It's like it's taking the collage effect that was recreated for the 98 version, it's building it into the music. It's like crazily cramming itself together. gets bigger and more colorful and more obviously about the strangling as the strangling happens. This ironically energetic inexorableness is reaching back to the feeling of there's menacing music in the next room, but we already know that this music knows about what's happening in this room, so it's even more ironic. Oh, I think this is a real standout tour de force piece of music and piece of scoring, the way that it creeps from one sensibility to the other, creeps from being background to being foreground to being 
raucously out of control background, which is depravedly indifference to the foreground. Yeah, that's all wonderfully said. And that's what's so marvelous about it. It embodies what we're saying this movie tries to be all along, which is a movie about the feeling that source music gives you. Right. This music is that and scoring the individual actions of the scene perfectly both things at once. Then Quinlan leaves the room and Janet Lee wakes up only to have this bloated, strangled face hanging over her head. And the music next door knows about that. It puts a big sting on it. But then it immediately and smoothly goes back into this texture of there is some piece of music being played by some band, but maybe one section of the band is practicing a different tune at the same time. It's layering, and in this legitimate Latin band style where you have a bunch of rhythmic layers and one of them is Mm -hmm. a free solo, you know, when people are playing in that style, it's all about having the ear and the sense of ensemble to find your place in an overall texture. And he just writes it so that each of those parts is doing a little too much so that it becomes crazy without actually breaking the rules of the musical style. Yeah, it's incredible. So she kind of stumbles out onto the balcony and yells for help. But the people down on the street below just think that she's waving or are meanly just waving back at her as though to say, yeah, what did you expect? You're here. Somehow the people in the band doing too much and overswelling the banks of what they should be playing just matches perfectly with the menace, yeah, of people around you being oblivious to you needing help. Yeah, yeah, that's the feeling of the whole movie, and this is the pinnacle of it. This is the best scene in the movie. I mean, it's definitely the best cue in the movie. Did you notice that the scheme of the cue, which runs for seven straight minutes, is that the first section before Grandy knows that something is wrong has a rhythm of two strokes per beat? Tucka, 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 tucka. And then when he gets on the phone, and now, uh oh, Quinlan's being pretty scary here, it switches to triplet, <laughs> three strokes per beat. And then when he comes to actually kill him, it goes up to four. The tempo stays the same, but the subdivision increases steadily. I thought, what a simple device, but it really, really works. So this cue, like the main title, I would consider a hybrid of diegetic and non-diegetic music. Yeah, agreed. And this is what I was saying about why I think the main title should be the main title, because it's helpful for that to be prepared. It's helpful for us to understand that this is a cohesive piece of music so that it can flare up from there. I, I hear the logic of that. When this greatest cue in the movie comes up, for it to have been what we were waiting for all along... Uh, yeah, is satisfying. And yeah, anyone who says, I prefer this movie with the really cool main title at the beginning of the movie, well, of course. But I do still hold out a sense that 
the substance, the chewy stuff that makes the movie something worth returning to is about figuring out how to live in this world, how to survive with all of these catchy and indifferent and malicious sounds. <laughs> so the idea of launching the movie directly into that still holds a kind of value to me. Wells said he had a big concept of how you'd be jumping from the sound of one culture's radio to the other. He definitely thought that a major role of the music in this movie would be to give you a sense of the border that gets talked about a lot, but is hard to visualize and it's not always clear which side of the border they're on. I think he thought the music was going to orient you to that. And the fact that he picked for the Mexican side of the border Afro-Cuban music, I think, is important to keep in mind for thinking about whether this movie is even about Mexico. It's just a classic thing to point out about this movie that Charlton Heston is a Mexican. He's in brown face makeup and it makes people uncomfortable as well it might. Well, it should. Well, yeah, as well it does now because of what that decision would mean if it were made now. And it's strange that Charlton Heston is playing a Mexican and not doing an accent, not doing anything. I read that he really regretted not doing an accent, which... Mm. (laughs) Well, it's just in a very simple scheme of a border. Mm. We don't really want the actual culture of Mexico. We don't Mm. want the actual music of Mexico. It takes place in a noir abstraction of a border. Yeah, that's true. Like his character says in the movie, all border towns bring out the worst in their countries. That's the idea here. Yeah. I think Wells put that line in the movie to kind of disclaim, like, Let's please not have an argument about whether this movie (laughs) represents Mexico. And I think criticism of that from the point of view of representation is perfectly fair and reasonable. I also think it is notable that the character that Charlton Heston was cast as to the script before Orson Welles got at it is not Mexican. Right. And it was Orson Welles' idea to change the moral dynamics of the movie by making that guy not an American good guy versus an American bad guy, but a Mexican good guy from across the border so that this border would come between them. That's true. You know, even though we crinkle our noses at the idea of Charlton Heston playing a Mexican nowadays, in the time the movie was made, the idea of having an upstanding, uncomplicatedly good hero character who is a Mexican was kind of progressive. Yeah, I think Orson Welles thought he was being progressive right. and was by the standard of 1958 Hollywood. So the main title and that background to Murder Q are both hybrids of diegetic and non-diegetic. There are a few pieces of strictly non-diegetic music in this score. It's true, yes. I didn't tally up the times, but there must be only five minutes of such music in this movie, if that. Yeah, if that. Some of it sits fairly comfortably. I thought these low, murmuring threat cues felt pretty good. The kind of the monster, the coiled snake of Mm -hmm. evil, the touch of evil. There's a motif that corresponds to Quinlan's evil, I think. This da na 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 na. Sure. Which is what the thing we heard over the logo at the beginning turns out to have been. Da da da. Right, and this is what we hear again at the end after he shoots the other guy. This is probably like the marquee, closely scored-to-picture music that's definitely score and not source in the movie. And this feels great. Yeah, all of those cues with the low alligator motif work. There were some other cues. There's a cue in here. I know what you're going to say. When Grandy runs after the kid. Yep. Yeah. 
where there's this very familiar sounding low piano and bongo business for 50s, 60s action. Like we talked about in Bullet, you know, this was just everywhere, this low piano and bongo sound. Which fits with the voice of this music. It comes from the same hyper-stylized Cuban band. Sure. And it's certainly a cool sound. It's always cool. But for a scene that's just... Joe Grandy, the small-time crime boss, chasing after one of his dumb nephews. And when he catches him, there are these jazz hits. Yeah, it sounds like those big shock hits that we were making a little bit of fun of for being overdramatic in The Man with the Golden Arm. Yeah, but what it really sounds like is theme from Peter Gunn, written very soon after this by Henry Mancini, I think dipping specifically into the style he had been working in in this movie. Yeah, this movie came sort of at the end of Mancini's tenure at Universal. He left to hang his own shingle, and then the Peter Gunn theme kind of launched him, and then he had his collaboration with Blake Edwards and all the Pink Panther stuff, etc. I mean, the Peter Gunn theme and the Touch of Evil theme have some genetic relation, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. And if we're going to mention the Peter Gunn theme, we have to mention again that the piano being played at the beginning of the Peter Gunn theme is the left hand of John Williams playing that piano. That's right. But the thing about the Peter Gunn music is that it is polish and excitement to the nth degree applied to this crime show to show you how super cool Peter Gunn is. I believe it. How could you not believe it? Listen to this. Yeah. Certainly, Hank Quinlan, good God, is not a cool guy, but neither is Miguel Vargas. Yeah, he's kind of square. That's his virtue, is that he's a witness to the vulgarity and amorality of the world, but he is fighting for good, and that is the honorable job of law enforcement. And that's who he is. He's not a cool dude. This world of the catchiness, the toe-tapping, shades-wearing awesomeness (laughs) of crime jazz just doesn't really have a place in Touch of Evil, at least the way I have come to watch it. That's fair. I mean, I love the sound of this music, so I'm not going to go too far in saying that it shouldn't be there. He finds ways toward it that feel like they fit in. Like the previous scene where Janet Lee throws the bulb at the kid across the way, the energy level there feels like a real match. There's only so far it can go before it's interrupting this creepy abandoned landscape that this movie is taking place in. The other, I think, most prominent piece of scoring that's really not source music at all, it kind of starts with some similar material. It's when Vargas runs to where Janet Lee is being held in a jail cell. Oh, right. So there's some of that rhythmic low piano stuff where he's running, but then it slows down when he gets there. Mancini really nimbly goes back and forth here between the kind of creeping bad guy sounding stuff to the most, you know, love music sounding thing that's in the score. There's some sensitive saxophone lines as he's comforting Janet Leigh. How did you feel about that, kid? I wasn't quite with it. It felt a little odd, I agree, for the music to be 
scoring the scene so closely, veering back and forth from, now I'm talking to the police sergeant about uh, what's happening. Where the hell does Quinlan think he is? Hanging a murder rap on my wife. But now I'm talking lovingly to my wife. My. Susie, lie down. And the music is following these turns. Again, I think skillfully, but it's not following the rules of the rest of the music. I was sensitized to it because Orson Welles talks about it pretty intelligently in that memo that this movie doesn't want Charlton Heston and Janet Leigh to fall into completely cardboard the man and the woman Mm -hmm. and that the movie was at risk of it and I thought scoring their affection this way at all wasn't helping keep the movie interesting in the way I think Orson probably would have wanted but Mancini's restraint and care and sensitivity to what the movie is about is apparent throughout so it never really crossed the line yeah well certainly I agree Okay, so I think there's one kind of music in this movie that we haven't talked about yet, and maybe it's right that we saved it for the end, because it's the last thing that you hear in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's this player piano piece, as Hank Quinlan says, the pianola. Pianola. Hey, we go this way, you know. Turner's still open for business. This is the music that is associated with Marlena Dietrich's character, who is a... um, She's definitely a fortune teller. She's a fortune teller and maybe other things on the side, or... We have reason to believe she might be other things. Hank Quinlan knew her, presumably in her capacity as other things. In his past, he comes back because he is tempted by the nostalgic sound of this pianola playing this tune. And he wanders in, and he's gotten so fat that she doesn't recognize him. Forgotten your old friend. Even though apparently they have some history. Mm-hmm. I told you we were closed. I'm Hank Quinlan. I didn't recognize you. You should lay out those candy bars. Yeah, this is the thing most people, if you said hum the music from Touch of Evil, I think people would go to this. You know, in the last episode, we talked for just a moment about the 1995 movie Get Shorty. Funny, because in that movie, John Travolta's character is obsessed with this movie, and we see him watching bits of it. And then this music kind of gets to fall out of this movie and apply to things in Get Shorty as well. Smile on us, stupid comments they think are so funny. You think the movie business is any different? Yeah, but I like movies. And I figured if I help Harry. And in falling out of the movie, it represents a beautiful Hollywood wistful dream from the past. Yeah. I mean, that's what it was written to sound like in this context a wistful dream from the past. Well, that's interesting. It is definitely what it has come to sound like, but I wondered what it was written to sound like. Do you think it was composed specifically to be nostalgic that way? I think this piece of music is, I was going to say, there's a picture of it in the dictionary next to nostalgia. Hmm. I think this music is the music that you hear when you're reading the dictionary definition of nostalgia. This is from a time long ago. This is a broken down merry-go-round that is your youth. Something simpler that has been degraded is being played on this, you know, out-of-tune player piano, and it kind of goes around in a circle. It's not an accident that the little hole in the loop, before it loops back around to the beginning, gets to fall right on Marlene Dietrich's entrance line. We're closed. This is music that's going to loop around and be this continuous reminder of something from the past. That's what I think. 
So old it's new, as she says. Oh, I thought it was, it's old it's new. All right, maybe I misheard her. She has a little bit of an accent, John. (laughs) Being old, it sure brings back memories. The customers go for it. It's old it's new. The sound of a player piano, almost whatever it's playing, is going to have some of those connotations. This is something that must have been in our place for 30 years. You know, they were made in the teens and 20s mostly. You have these rolls sitting around. It must be some old tune. So yes, it's inherent to pianolas and the rinky-tink sound of this. Well, I think the idea that anything being played by this machine is going to be just as nostalgic is belied by we get to hear a different piece of music being played on it, a more honky-tonk, rollicking piece. It doesn't have the same wistfulness, certainly. It sounds old, sure, it sounds like something that's from a bygone age, but I think this waltz that gets to be Marlene Dietrich's theme, Tana's theme, Mm -hmm. is so, so beautifully melancholy... It's, uh, you know, kind of on the outside looking in at something emotional. It's next to it. It's at something of a remove from something that you have wistful memories of. I read at the beginning the quote from Orson Welles saying we really don't want to use Mexican ranchero or mariachi music, but I think that this is supposed to sound Mexican. I think that those parallel sixths repeating is Mancini's idea of evoking the mariachi sound, Hmm. and I think that's confirmed when you hear a folk-sounding arrangement of this same tune when Joe Grandy takes Quinlan to the bar and gets him drunk. Yeah, that's true. That definitely sounds Mexican there in that bar. I mean, I don't know that much about mariachi, but I feel like the parallels in sixths, mostly, is what, you know, the two trumpets in a mariachi band might be doing. Sure. Vargas can't hurt me. Well, maybe not. But maybe without little deal, we can hurt him. I mean, is Tana Mexican? She's on the Mexican side of the border, and obviously she's Marlene Dietrich and not Mexican, but (laughs) ditto Charlton Heston. Is she in this story's concept of a border uh, a Mexican person? Maybe. She says adios at the end, right? That's true. The last line of the movie, as she's walking off to the mournful strains of this music, now being heard, I think, in a scoring capacity. This is the first time we've heard this music not coming out of the player piano, but we get to hear it anyway as she walks off into the nighttime. Disappearing into the dark, yeah. Yeah. Goodbye, Tanner. Adios. This end title, I view with a skeptical eye. I kept thinking, this doesn't sound like Mancini would have ended the movie this way. Do you think that's by Mancini? You mean the... The original. You hear the player piano as Marlene Dietrich walks away, and then the orchestra shows up to say, da, 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 the theme from Touch of Evil, which is over now. You had a great time. Goodbye. <laughs> feels out of character for this movie and when they changed that in 98 i felt relief of not having to hear that all right there are other people credited a joseph gershenson music supervisor or something Mm -hmm. in my fantasy i wanted to believe some studio person pinned the tail on that donkey and just made an ending there (laughs) i believe that i do believe that i was gonna say earlier you know when you were talking about how so many things in this movie are just because people wanted to hang out with orson welles for a day (laughs) same applies to marlena dietrich he called her up and said hey come be in my movie he sprung it on 
her at the last minute and said, I need you to come shoot a scene tonight. And she hopped to and ran over to Paramount and grabbed some costumes and some wigs off the rack and drove down to where they were shooting. And I think filmed all of her scenes that night. Yeah. And he said that the studio people saw the rushes and said, wait, Marlena Dietrich is in this movie? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That character is not in the screenplay that Wells wrote. Yeah. He shoehorned it in, like, on the fly. And I think that it creates some of the really unusual feeling of this movie that that character and with her, this pianola nostalgia, is in this movie applied to Hank Quinlan the monster. The point in the movie where we go into someone's wishes and dreams and lost hopes, it's the murderer. (laughs) It's such a strange heart for this movie to have. And then to have the famous epitaph for him that he was some kind of a man. What does it matter what you say about him? Knowing that it was applied at the very last minute to this movie that was going to be about a badge of evil before that. My take on Tannis theme is that there is a certain serendipity to this. That they just kind of built this set and what would make this set interesting there's a piano roll playing and they have a history and then it turns out to kind of reach out and color the whole movie and i think that's why i find that punchy end title not in the best dramatic taste because the thing it's doing is so strange and subtle i don't want the hollywood orchestra to get its hands on that and say we know what this means because i don't know what it means it leaves such an odd mist in the air I kind of had two different experiences of what this means and what missed it left in the air between watching the two different versions of it. I was left a little confused by it in the original version. I felt like, well, this is very something. This is invoking some emotion about something, but boy, I'm not sure why I should feel emotional about this guy who is obviously the villain. It felt like it didn't quite add up to me, even as compelled as I was by the music and by the just oddness of having this element stuck onto the end of this really cool climactic sequence. When I watched the 98 version, having been sitting with the movie for longer, getting more into the world of just the gritty seediness being the point and I shouldn't worry too much about the story, that second time I felt like, well, this is just sealing that everything is awful out there. (laughs) That was the message I took away the second time, was that there's good cops and there's bad cops, and yet they sometimes wind up doing the same things and having the same outcomes What does that mean? What does it mean to have a flawed and evil world and flawed and evil people processing it? And it's all just the depravity of everything. It's kind of of what I took away from the ending the second time. I don't know. I think this music was kind of there for me both ways. The first time it made me feel confused but compelled by something. And the second time it made me feel like all too aware of the bitter nothingness of everything. I mean, I think that that is what is fascinating and artful about this movie. I think Orson Welles has gotten at the core of film noir Mm, here. Yeah. And it's what you just said, that the world is probably beyond redemption, but we have to put up the good fight, right? It leaves you with an uncertainty. We're not in a good world. People are not generally good. But it doesn't damn the world either. Marlena Dietrich just sort of... Just walks away from it. Yeah, she just says adios. Why do I need to say something? There's no moral to this. (laughs) To have this pianola, which is a robot. It's not a person with a voice. It's like a piece of paper from uh, decades ago, kind of reminding us of better things and the capacity to be happy. But uh, how much faith do we want to put in that? It all balances out 
in a kind of a beautiful way that I think was just sort of lucky. Yeah, I'm with you there. Do you think that the performance of Tana's theme, they punched an actual piano roll, or do you think it's people playing as though they are a piano roll? It's a person playing. I came across the name of the pianist. I can't remember where, but it is a pianist playing that. If this is a person faking a piano roll tremolo, they're doing a really good job making it sound real. Because that tremolo... Uh When you do that, it's usually not recorded from someone on an actual recording piano. It's actually punched mechanically. And whoever is playing those, they're doing a really good job sounding like a machine. Yeah, one way or another, it's an excellent performance. Mechanical music making has such a distinct effect. The loneliness of knowing that it's a machine. Trapped in amber, like there was human feeling in this, but it's not really alive anymore. You're still exposed to it anyway. And that it actually entrances the character in the movie. There's references to the music in this movie several times. I can't hear you over the music. Yeah, that's the crux of this last sequence is Quinlan's old partner is turning on him and is putting on a wire to get this confession on tape. He goes over to where Quinlan is in Tana's place and he says over the radio for Charlton Heston to hear him, I'll get him out away from that music. This music is the past that it has a hold on this character. Mm. And in order to solve the movie, he needs to be taken away from it. I'll get him out. Away from that music. Be sure he doesn't see you. Yeah, the place where he gets recorded is kind of creepily empty space for this movie that's all been about the right. atmosphere of the background music. And then they just go off into like the black night and there's nothing. And the sound design is also just kind of a wind. It feels peculiarly empty in the ending there. And so he gets him away from that music, and this fantastic sequence plays terrifically without any music, as it should. But then after everything goes down and Quinlan goes down, <laughs> like John Travolta says, you're going down, Orson. That's right. Yeah, like you said, the epitaph of it is this music again, and we're not hearing it over the piano roll. We're just hearing it because it's the theme to the character who's on the screen, which... Like you said, serendipitously, somehow ties things, maybe not together, but they're tied. Is that all you have to say for him? He was some kind of a man. What does it matter what you say about people? The moral of a badge of evil, I assume, is that there are bad cops in the world, but fighters for good will shine the light on them and clean up this dirty world one bad cop at a time. The moral of this movie is kind of like, you know the kind of stuff that goes on, we're doing our best here, but uh, people are people, and uh, good night. (laughs) All right, Andy, it's time for us to say we're doing our best here, people are people, and good night. All right, my turn to draw. Yeah. I'm still happy to see that bucket again. Oh, yeah. We're not leaving this bucket behind for a while. All right. Although, you know, it's a crazy year, but Oscars season might be coming around soon, so that might happen. But otherwise, we're just sticking to the plan. Well, that's the plan, too, I guess. Ooh, look at those balls go. Ooh, listen to that menacingly indifferent music. I have drawn the ball. Okay. And the number on the ball corresponds to the line in our list, which corresponds to the movie... Oh boy, what is it? (laughs) All right, I have 1991's Terminator 2 Judgment Day, score by Brad Fidel. 
Really? Yes, really. I drew that. Does that excite you? It does. It does? <laughs> I think that's cool. Cool. I'm into it. All right. I'm glad you're into it. You know, it's a classic action movie. It's a good time. Yeah, it's true. I shouldn't scoff. This score is such an iconic sound of action movies, and we were talking briefly about it with Crimson Tide recently, but this is the movie that everyone has seen and everyone remembers how it sounds, and it's worth talking about. Yeah, let's do it. I'm kind of excited about this. Okay, great. Great. All right, everybody. Uh, thanks a lot for listening. Thanks a lot to those who have written lovely reviews for us in the iTunes store and the podcast app. It really means a lot to us. It helps the show out, and we're very grateful. Yeah, thanks for listening at all. As has been true all along, the show's Twitter account is at Scoresettlers. Feel free to suggest movies, talk back to us there. Yeah. All right, cool. I think this is going to be fun next time, Andy. Cool. I mean, it'll be fun to watch, for sure. (laughs) What else do you need, right? Uh, We'll see. We'll see what we need. Let's see what we need. I'll see you then. All right. Hasta la vista. Adios. Adios.